0: jazzed about it. Uh, We are going to start a series through uh, Exodus. We probably are not going to go through the entire book because it'll take a year or two, but we are going to be pursuing aggressively through it and having a ball with it. And uh, listen, this is a book about God redeeming his people and God showing himself very big. And uh, I am so excited about being a part of being able to do that, about seeing God be big and redeeming his people. Would you grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have some people coming around that can let you borrow one. But go to Exodus chapter 1, right in the beginning of the Bible, uh, second book of the Bible. Now, as we get into this, I want to, today's going to be very much a a lot of background And setting the stage out of chapter 1. And I want to begin to talk with you on a couple things here just to set uh, some understanding as we read. First about biblical narrative. What we are reading here is called biblical narrative. Uh, There's a few things about narrative I just want to get on the table. One, narrative is story. Story. It is a historical story. It is a true story. It's not a made-up story, but it's a real story. But it is story. Now, God could have written his word in a variety of kinds of ways. And we have his word written in a variety of kinds of ways. We have the Psalms. We have the Proverbs. Kind of its own genre uh, of how literature is written. We have the epistles like Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians. We have uh, you know, that that's more of a teaching reality. We have uh, Revelation. Relatory material, like in Revelation, a good bit in Daniel, and and then we have uh, narrative. Narrative is about 70 to 75% of how God chose to write his word, and narrative is story. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't know me well enough yet, I love story. I love narrative. And one of the big key things about it is you have to be at the story. Okay, the next couple words here. Um, uh, Narrative is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Narrative is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, it's non-didactic. I put that word in there just so you think I'm smart. (laughs) It's... this, this is what we're saying here. Uh, its story, it's, it, it's, it is teaching is in it certainly, but it's telling how God is working with people. And how God is living, is God how he's working, I should say, among people. And, and Exodus is a narrative. It's not written like we were back a while ago in, in Ephesians where it's teaching. This is a story that takes place. It's not didactic, which means the teaching aspect of In other words, it's describing what took place back then. We learn about God, but yet one of the things about it that's really important, it's not prescriptive, and this is where a lot of bad theology and a lot of bad practice comes out of. Because people go back to these times, and they look at that, and they go, well, they, they painted blood over the door frames of their houses back in Exodus, so we should too, not... Okay, Because it's describing what took place on how God was working with people at that time. And yes, there's principles about it, so I want to make sure you understand. We're going to story, but we're not just going to tell stories and go home and feel like it's a bedtime story. We're going to stories that are talking about God with people and God's plan. But it's so wonderful that it's in story, it's real life. And so if you, as I mentioned, if you know me, we are going, I, I'm going to be and we're going to be animated about this at times. Because you have to feel what was taking place in those days. And one of my pet peeves as a pastor is when I go somewhere and someone teaches narrative like it's a lecture class. And, and they forget the story of what's taking place and they teach the three-point outline when the three-point outline isn't in there. It's the story. What's it moving to? There's, there, there's, there, there's resolution. There's contrast. There's, there's a, a, a plot that's taking place. There's characters. And so we're going to get in that and have a blast with it. Are you ready to have a blast with this? Okay, good. I'm so glad you are excited about this because I am. Can you tell? Okay. Okay. I really am with this. I love it. Now, let me lay a little bit of background information here. Uh, because we've got a number of you here. A number of you have know your Bible pretty well. A number of you are just kind of new with the Bible. And I want to tell you, I love the fact that there's a number of people here that are really new with their Bible. So cool. So absolutely cool. And if you feel like, gosh, I don't really know very much about the Bible, Welcome. Okay, welcome. And so here is what I want to do. I want to set a little bit of background as we start in Exodus chapter 1 because Exodus is really the continuation of Genesis. So what happened in Genesis? Well, let's go back and take a look. Well, first in the beginning of Genesis, we had the creation and the fall. Sin came into the picture. Then a little while later after that, we have Noah and the ark. Then we have a, the Tower of Babel. That was the time where all the people who were living then thought, let's, let's build this tower to reach God and kind of ascend to God. And then God's like, not. And so he wipes that out and languages take place. And so the Tower of Babel. Then you have the Abrahamic call and covenant. In fact, let's go to Exodus chapter 12, okay? Let's read a couple verses here to set the stage. There's an Abrahamic call and covenant. Abram's this guy who's living back in the day, and God, in his sovereign choice, selects Abram to be the man. Okay, what man? Well, let's take a look. Chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is future, okay? So he's talking to Abram now, but talking about what's going to happen future. Uh, The land that I will give you, verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now understand here, as you look at Genesis, you see in the creation, God wanted to build a people that were his unto himself alone. And then later that didn't happen, and so God wipes everything out and wants to start again with Noah. And again, sin takes over. But the point is, is God wanted a people unto himself. Now God is calling Abram to start the next process of that, calling a people to himself. Let's go over a page or two to Genesis chapter 15. Chapter 15, and let's pick up in verse 3. God is talking again to Abram here. Verse 3, chapter 15. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my, will be my heir. What's the deal? God, a little while later, well, you know, on our text a little while, but a while later, God had said, I'm going to build a nation out of you, a people out of you. And Abram's like, dude, like, <laughs> it's me and my wife and we're old and no kids. Like, what's the deal? Now, I have an heir, but he's not my child. God, hello, did you forget? And God's like, what? No. Okay, well, in fact, let's take a look. Uh, verse 5, and he brought him outside. God brought, I'm sorry, verse 4. And the Lord, the word, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. In other words, the person who's not his blood heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven and number of the stars. If you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Two things God restates here. Number one, God says he is going to bring a people out of him. And how many people? A whole lot. He's making, look at the stars. If you can count them, that's how many. Massive amounts of people, Abram, are going to come. But God, I don't have a son. Well, I'm going to take care of it. Not only that, I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to give you a place, a land. That's what God laid out with Abram. Very important as we go to Exodus, okay? Setting the stage for you. So the creation, Noah, Tower of Babel, Abraham at call. Then Isaac is born. Isaac is the son of whom? Abraham and Sarah. God came through, right? And Isaac is born. Isaac marries Rebekah, then Abraham dies. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Abraham dies, it's like, look at the stars full of the generations that God promised. Not. There's one, in essence. I mean, this is little podinky thing that's getting started here and yet god promised what would take place keep all this in mind as we go to exodus then so abraham dies then jacob who is the jacob esau the twin sons of isaac uh, are born then joseph is born from jacob and then joseph becomes a slave in egypt sold by his brothers great family tight family he's sold uh, to, as a slave into Egypt. All this roll. Just you've got to read the latter half of Genesis to get an idea of the sovereignty of God that's going to we're going to see it continue in Exodus here. But Joseph then becomes a prime minister. Joseph's family moves to Egypt and Joseph dies. That's the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus is about to begin. But two last things I need to bring to your attention as we set the background here. One, I want to talk to you about dating. Now, not as in time dating, Not as in relationship, dating. But I want to talk to you about dating here just for a moment. Um, You can see on this timeline, we're going to fill a good part of this in today. And over here you see in 1446 B.C. of God is the time of the Exodus. Now, there are some scholars who say that they think that the Exodus took place more about 1280. I don't hold to that view, and I just want to let you know why. For some of you, this doesn't make any difference. For a number of you, it, it might, and it fits for what we're going to be talking about today because I'm going to be talking about some of the pharaohs that I think and others think were the pharaohs at the time that Moses doesn't name, okay? Okay? So the timing is a reason. I want for you to understand this. First Kings 6.1 says that 480 years before Solomon's fourth reign as king was the Exodus. So the Exodus was 480 years before Solomon's fourth year. Why the fourth year? It's not relevant to talk about right now. Solomon, it is known and everybody would agree that Solomon took place, took the throne in 970 B.C., Four years later, it would be 966 B.C.-ish, right in there. So then you track 480 years back, you come to right around 1446, 1445 B.C., at the time of the exodus that took place. Now, we come over here, we've seen this side is what we've just kind of talked about. There's the Egyptian rule, Joseph is in Egypt there's Egyptian rule in place at the time. Uh, he, moves, he moves over there. Or takes prime minister about 1880 B.C. In 1800 B.C. is when Joseph dies, is buried in Egypt. And that's kind of some setting of some timing. And we're going to fill in some of this gap here in just a moment with some history as we get started into this book today. The second thing I want to make note to you is in our text, I think there's some time lapses. Some gaps that aren't noted so clearly. I'm not going to take the time today to explain to you the reasoning why we think there's gaps in there. But I just want for you to know as we come, we're going to hit some time gaps there. That for you might be like, where did that time gap come from? Like, How did that happen? I'm just not going to have the time to get into all the historical, uh, archaeological background of some of it. But I want for you to know as you read, you're going to go like, I thought that was all one pharaoh. I don't think it was, okay, and that's where I'm going. If you have a different perspective, if you're really into this and you have a different perspective on it, it's okay, okay, but this is right. Okay, here we go. All right, you ready to get into this? Okay, yeah, okay. Hey, listen, come on. All right, Exodus chapter 1, verse what? 1. Here we go. Here we go. We are starting months and months of a voyage here. Chapter 1, verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Jacob was renamed Israel. So these are the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his householders. these lists of names. They're listed in an order. These first ones are the sons of Jacob through, through Leah. Reuben, Simon, uh, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Those are the sons through Leah. Then we have and Benjamin. That's the son of Through uh, Rachel. Rachel and had Benjamin and Joseph through Jacob. Multiple wives, not on that topic today. All right. Verse 4. Dan and Naphtali, those are Jacob's sons through Rachel's servant. uh, Then Gad and Asher, those are Jacob's sons through Leah's servant helper. Uh, Verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Those are the men that were there. So let's just going to say at the time that they came into the land of Egypt, uh, Joseph had already been in Egypt. About that time, there's about 140 in this clan. Remember Abraham? Abraham started, then Isaac. By this time now, we're getting in this place here where in the very beginning, actually off the graph, there's about 140 of these Israelites, these Hebrews, coming into the land of Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died. Time gap. And all his brothers and all that generation, time gap. Okay? Got the picture? They came in. He's just setting up the story. They came in. They they were there. They died. And the generation died out. But look at the next verse. Key, key, key verse. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now if you remember they come into Egypt this small clan of about first Joseph is there and then the clan comes in there's about 140, 200 of these people that are there and they're in Egypt. They're not slaves at the time. In fact Joseph is the prime minister. His family is given highly revered property, place and esteem. And so in the beginning times it was actually the whole Hebrew, Israel, Egypt thing was a pretty good working relationship. It wasn't slave to master. It was a pretty good deal going on and that's what's taking place and here moses wants to start out as he's the one penning under the spirit of god this book of exodus and he tells us they were fruitful notice in verse 7 he doesn't just say they're fruitful but he like goes out of control explaining it they're fruitful they increased greatly they multiplied they grew exceedingly strong and it was filled with them you see the emphatic thing and what's trying to be said here this is a big point for what we're covering through chapter one today they are just like multiplying miraculously like rabbits. And they're just boom, filling the land. These Israelites are. Why? Why would that be the case? All the way back, Genesis 15, when God said, Abraham, look at the sky. You see that? One day, that's going to be your descendants. My people. And I'm going to give them a place. And right now, there's 140, if you will, at the time, in a foreign land. There's not very many people. They don't have a place. But listen to me. Big God has a plan. Okay? So let's pick up the story from here. (coughs) Setting my notes here just a second. One thing before we go. 1730 B.C. Andrea, go ahead and bring that up. In 1730 BC, in the history, it is known that there was a time where the Hykas came into rule. Hykas is a word that means foreign rulers of countries. In other words, rulers of foreign countries. And so at the time, in Joseph's day, this was taking place. Then about at 1730, the Hykas rule. In other words, there's, there's Egypt and Israel living in, living in, Egyptians and Israelites living in Egypt. Then these foreigners come in and in 1730 actually take over the leadership that the Egyptians have. So now what you have is they have these foreign rulers over Egypt, controlling Egypt. Then you have the Egyptians and the Israelites there who had had a pretty good overall relationship together. But then these foreign rulers come into place and take over. Now why is this important? Because verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And I think what this is talking about here Is I understand timeline Likely Joseph dies There's a period of time But by the time that the Israelites are there All of a sudden a new rule comes over the top of things They don't know Joseph Who cares about Joseph they, All they know is this They took over Egypt They conquered the Egyptians And now they get there And they assess what they now have in the land of Egypt And they look and they go We've already conquered the Egyptians Now there's all these Israelites And there's a ton of them them. And if we're going to be overseeing them, an authority ruling over them, we've got to take care of them, and we'll see that here in the text. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us, the high caste rulers, deal shrewdly with them, I think it's the Israelites, lest they multiply. Hey, dude, they already are. Uh, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies. This is one of the things I was just going to tell you. In the historical flow of the text, you have to answer the question, who's the enemies? And that's why I think in this flow of it, historically, all historians agree to the 730 high Cast rule. I think it's at that point in time, they did not know Joseph. They were over, foreigners were over the land. And in this, they see all these people multiplying, and they got to, they got to control and take them over. And the Egyptians are their enemies. Okay, That's what I think is happening here. Uh, unless they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, verse 11. Therefore, they set the taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burden. And They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python, and Ramses. Remember Ramses from the Moses movie? There's a lot of historical inaccuracies in that. Cool movie, but a lot of historical inaccuracies. So here's the deal. The Israelites are in Egypt, are being ruled by foreign rulers. The Egyptians have been conquered, I think, at this period of time. And they look at the Israelites and they say, there's so many, we're going we're to make them work for us. Because understand, before this, it wasn't in this kind of form. And now they become taskmasters over the Israelites and life begins to stink and be hard. Misery. This is a time for the Israelites where what had been working rather quite well is now thrown a kilter and is now in a place where life becomes hard, okay? Life is miserable right now for these Hebrews. And yet, look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Hey, listen. God is trying to do something here in this time. We'll come back to that later on. Let's keep reading. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Wait a second. I thought that the Hyakos were ruling over Yes, they were. Well, what happened was, in the, the next slide, what happened was, is in 1570, the Egyptians took control over the Hyksos. Again, historians know about this. They kicked the Hyksos out of the country. Now the Egyptians, after, after these hundred, couple hundred years, have now come back in control, and the Israelites are under their authority. So now the Egyptians are back in control, verse 12, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Life is getting harder here. It's not just taskmasters anymore. It's now they are true, real-deal slaves that are going on, verse 14, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Listen, what it was before over here, the Egyptians and the Israelites working in a pretty good relationship, now that's all thrown apart over time through this rule that then came back, and now they're going to rule over the Israelites and make their lives misery too, more misery, misery plus. Now, I just got to pause here for a moment. I'm going through all this kind of historical stuff, and I want to ask this. This is story, Right? And one of the things we need to do in story is think about what would it have been like to be living at that time. I want to just tell you folks, we have no idea. We have no idea what this is like. Some people in our world today do. But most of us as Americans, we have no idea. Can you imagine being born a slave and die a slave imagine being born in a horrible situation you know our economy excuse me but this is nothing compared to what their life was and that's the life that they were living that's the day and the age these are the times where you go where is god What is God doing? I am born a slave. I die a slave. Like, what's with this life, God? we're going to come back to that. And they worked ruthlessly as slaves. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. Now, I think in here we have a next king. So what's taken place is we've had Joseph. Joseph dies. Egyptian rule is taking place. Then foreign rule comes in, and uh, the, the the Israelites are multiplying. The life gets hard. Egyptians take control again. It's just Egyptians and Israelites in the land. And then Amos the first, who was the leader of that revolt, one of the leaders of that role, revolt, became the pharaoh at the time. And then his son Amenhotep, something like that, became the next. Pharaoh after him And this is the one I think Who is now talking to the midwives Here there's been a movement Of pharaohs and again I'm not getting All in a tither about who was the pharaoh at the time If it shifted whatever The story's still moving here I'm just trying to put it in some real context of time Verse 15 Then the king of Egypt who I think is this, uh, the son Said to Hebrew midwives One of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah Don't you want to have that name Anyway, here's the Hebrew midwives. One of the questions is, is, is the text saying uh, 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 midwives of Hebrews, in other words, two Egyptian women supervising over the, the birth of the children of the Hebrews, or are these two Hebrew women? There's a debate on that. I think it's two Hebrew women. Part of the reason is is because both of their names are Hebrew in form. Secondly, I think it's because of what's about to come in their big view of God. Okay. So these midwives, Pharaoh asked these midwives to come. They're the, I think they're the supervising midwives, verse 16. And Pharaoh says to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them in the birthstool, back then uh, they didn't have beds. It was actually the Hebrew word for birthstool means two stones. They would sit and give birth in a more of a sitting position. And the birthstool, and if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Listen, how sick does this get? And here is the pharaoh who comes in. This tells you there's immense fear over the Israelites. So how do you wipe out a nation? Well, his approach was you wipe out the men. Why? Because the men were the muscle workers in the land and the things that they're building. Also, men were the ones who went into battle. You take the men out, you take the nation out physically at that point in time. And so the midwives are told likely that as the woman is giving birth, you hold your hand over the child's mouth till you know if it's a boy or a girl. And if it's a boy, then you continue holding your hand so there's no noise being made and suffocate the child to death. Partial birth abortion. A lot of things don't change, do they? Verse 16, And when you serve as midwife, the Hebrew women see them on the birthstool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God. Way to go, ladies. One more time. At the cross and at the risen tomb, empty tomb, and here they are, these two ladies. Bless their hearts because they were more concerned about their God and pleasing their God than they were concerned about pleasing Pharaoh. And think of this Pharaoh is telling them to kill all these children, and if they say no, like what? He has no problem killing them. And they're not foolish. They know exactly what's going on. That Pharaoh's asking them to do this, and if they don't do this, Pharaoh is going to take their lives out, and yet still they fear God in this. What does it mean to fear God? Well, one of the ways I've termed it is there's two words, or two statements that help us to see fear God. One is the wow factor. You know, God, wow, God is so cool. God is just huge. God is God. Wow, cool. That's a part of the fear of God. The other part of the fear of God is, I'll call it the oh my factor. Oh my, he is God. Oh my, I am nothing in the front, in the face before God. I am nothing. I fear God because he is God, he is holy, he is God. There's the reverence aspect, and yet there's the fear reality of it. That's what's talked about here in the fear of God. And yet how that's related into their lives, these women were more concerned about pleasing God than about pleasing Pharaoh. So what did they do? But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Actually, it sounds like they heard the command and left. Now what are they going to do? Well... Let's find out. Verse 18, some time later, the king of Egypt calls the midwives back and says to them, why have you done this? Done what? Let the child, male children live? So We've got some pro-life ladies here that are going on. Why are you letting the children live? Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they, the Hebrew women are vigorous okay, we'll get there, and give birth before the midwife comes to them. You know, what, what kind of little bit of sweet smack talk here in some ways. You know, listen, King, I'm telling you, it's like I'm the, we're the supervising midwives. And by the time the midwives get there, I'm telling you, these Hebrew women are so tough. I used to go to the University of Minnesota. There we would say, they're like North Dakota women. You know, they're just tough. And it's like at that, I mean, you get out there and they're tough. And by the time we get there, they've already had the baby. What are we supposed to do, king? Now, let me clarify something. Was this a half-truth or was this wise response? I don't know. Straight up, I don't know. Uh, Listen, uh, when asked something, telling the truth does not mean telling everything you know. And so there is an aspect where this could have just been a very wise way to respond to a fool, as Proverbs would talk about. Answer a fool according to his folly. That could be what's happening here. But also what could be happening here is that they're telling a half-truth or a half-lie, and a half-lie is a lie. And listen, it is not uncommon in the Scriptures for men and women of God to have lied. And God is not thrilled about lies because God is sovereign and big and he can work through truth. That's what he wants to work through truth. But even if this is a lie, we're going to see here part of the response. I don't know how to answer this, but we do this. We're truth tellers. We're to be truth tellers. Uh, High schoolers and under, you're to be a truth teller, right? Adults, you're to be a truth teller at work, correct? Okay. Okay, I wasn't too convinced by that, but that's the case. So, that's what's happening. Verse 20. So God dealt with the mid well with the midwives. That's a part in this where I don't know if this is God is just like overlooking and I'm still going to do my thing or whether God was like, you know what? They, they, they spoke truth. I don't know. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Kind of a power thing. They multiplied. One more time in murder. A time of murder. And they're still multiplying. God is trying to say something through the text here. People are just multiplying. Verse 31. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Well, verse 22, and let's wrap up. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Hey, listen, it's gone from misery to more misery, and then to murder, and now more murder. It's not just the midwives, but now Pharaoh has asked all his people to be involved in the murdering process. And it's just up to ante to the whole thing. That's how chapter 1 ends. <laughs> Pretty depressing ending. I mean, like, what's, what's the hope that's going to come out of this? <sighs> Imagine living in the time. Life is hard. It's gotten harder. It's getting harder. You see no end in sight. And what did you deserve to do, have this? And by the way, where is God in all of this? If you're a person living in this, you don't know about a bunch of this other stuff happening in history. And you've seen in generations past life has been bad. In generations recent it's been bad. In generations present it's been bad. And as far as you can see, you don't know about the exodus, but as far as you can see it's just going to keep going down. And you're like, God, what is going on with my life? Do you care? Have you ever felt that way? Listen, this is one of the things I love about narrative. We can relate to that to a certain point. Aren't there times in your life where you're just like, what are you doing? Why? Are there? It was a teaching moment. You know, one of the things about this church is we really try and be real. And, and so, uh, do you understand what I'm talking about here? Do you ever feel that way? Okay, please, respond back to that. I mean, it gets me going in, in this process. that I want for you to understand, listen, we get this life stuff. We don't get that situation, but we certainly get some life. So let's do this. Let's just grab a couple things we can walk away from this text with. And let me answer this question. What is God doing in Exodus chapter 1? What is God doing here? One word I could sum it up. God is multiplying. He's multiplying. Go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15. He's going to bring a nation. And what is God doing in Genesis 1 and through all this time? He's doing that. But then think of yourself living at that point in time. And you're like, but my life stinks. And yet God's doing that? I don't like that. Hey. Life is way bigger than me. And I love you enough to say, listen, life is not all about you. And here are people living from their birth to their death in a terrible setting. Would I have been okay in saying, God, you're a faithful redeeming sovereign God and the circumstances of my life they're in your hands am I okay with that I want to tell you I think we struggle with this we struggle with this Because uh, Exodus 1 is showing this, three statements. A faithful God is fulfilling his promises. A faithful God is fulfilling his promises. He was fulfilling his promises then, and he's fulfilling his promises now. Secondly, a redeeming God is preparing his people. Listen, in a little while, I, I'm leaving out why I think a lot, God is doing a lot of this stuff. I, just as the story flows, God is preparing a people to leave Egypt. Because when you come back here living in Egypt, life was pretty good. And God is working his people over time, multiplying and preparing them for that one day. And while you're living here, you've got to keep that plan in mind. I'd say for us, listen to me. A redeeming God is preparing people today for him. It's not much different. And we get so caught up in the circumstances that we forget about the plan. Third, a sovereign God is doing it his way. But I don't like the way God's doing it. I don't like what God's allowing in my life. Understand, man, I I totally get it. Why did God allow what happened with Jill in the accident? Why has God allowed what's happening with Paul here recently just physically with some stuff? Why is God allowing stuff in your work or confrontation? Why is God allowing that stuff? You know what? because God is a faithful God who's in the process of fulfilling his promises. He's a redeeming God who's working to grow you and to fulfill his plan. And because God's God. And listen, there is one day when or one day when we stand before God and go back and go, "God, why did you let why did you let me get fired in my life? Why did you let that happen in my life?" I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be like, "Well, that was dumb." Listen, we have to bank ourselves on the character of God. And one of the wonderful things about the narratives is we see how God has worked over the generations of time and we can bank on the fact of how he's worked there and do it today. And so I want to do this for you today. Live the line. Here's my statement. Live the line. What am I talking about? Listen, we are so about living the dot It's about my life from when I was born to when I died. This is life. And God's like, Doug, you're such a fool. Because life is about eternity. Live the line. In other words, we need to live today in light of God's plan in the future. We live today in light of what the scripture tells us about today. Romans 8, 28, 29, that we know that all things work together for good. For good, like happy, that I get rich, that I get wealth. No, that I grow in Christ and become more like Christ. You mean God is allowing bad things to happen in my life to grow me? Absolutely, because look back then. And by the way, these people are so much like us. We're going to be walking with them and we're going to be saying, I'm so like them because they're learning their God as we are. Live the line. Live the line. Let's have an eternal perspective. And I just, if you're living in a misery moment in life, I may have no idea what it is. Whether you're living one now or you live one soon, you will. And I just want to remind you, God a faithful God a redeeming God a sovereign God set yourself on his character and even in those times when I'm like I don't get it and I don't like it remember we have a big God who is in control of everything he knew about the tree falling on their car He knows what's happening in your life. And he's faithful, and he's a redeeming God, and he's a sovereign God, and I need to submit to it. And not live the dot, but live the line. And I'm going to tell you, we need each other's help to do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these dear people in Exodus. These folks who are living hard lives with history happening around them that seem to be completely out of control. I can't imagine having lived back then what I would have done. But we're living here today and the story of the Exodus is pointing us to learn about you and Lord, I would just, as we get started in this story of this wonderful work of you redeeming a people, I would ask that we would understand that you are still in the redeeming business today. You are about redeeming a people unto yourself. Why could you not come back and come today, stop things now? Because you want to re- continue to redeem a people unto you until the time that you decide it is time. And Lord, we have a hard time understanding and seeing life from an eternal perspective. You know that. And I would just pray specifically for those this morning who are going through some just really hard times in their life. Oh, Lord, would you help remind them from your word that you are a faithful, redeeming, sovereign God who knows exactly what's going on and you are using it to grow them, you are using it to use them as ministers for you and you are using it to move the length of time, of plan according to your purposes because you're sovereign. And I pray for them if they're just like, I don't get it, I don't like it right now. Oh, Lord, may the fact that they know You are in control. Give them immense hope. Lord, may we be the kind of church that uh, helps one another. A side-by-side kind of church. Lord, thank you that you have it all in a plan. Because some days, this life seems like a total chaotic mess. But how reassuring. You're moving things. You're multiplying things. And it's all in your hands. In your name we pray. Amen.